Hi, Brad Jersak here. I'm here to tell you about my new book, A More Christ-like Way. We're going to be talking about the Jesus Way, or the Jesus Walk. I'll start the book with some conversation about deconstruction, which is a very popular term these days. And I'll offer some alternative metaphors that I think are more gentle, such as art restoration, for example. Then we'll get into four counterfeit ways, ways that we've constructed that try to co-opt Christianity and turn it into Christless religion. Ways that have a moralistic attitude to it, or perhaps us-them mentalities and exclusion, or civil religion for that matter. But then we'll get to the heart of the book. Seven facets of the Christ-like way. And those facets will include such gems as radical inclusion, radical hospitality, radical surrender, radical forgiveness, and so on. In this book, Jesus shows us what it is to be human. So this is the second week of our series, A More Christ-like Way, based on this book by the author that you saw there of the same title, uh, Brad Jerzak. And, and uh, we've been uh, just starting to read the book, and the sermons coincide with the reading, and then every week there's a new online connect group that you can discuss your reading. So you hear the sermon about the reading and then you can read it and then you can go to the new online connect group. And that, that online connect group had their first meeting this past Wednesday. They had 26 people in the, we call it a small group. That's not very small. We have to rename it. Uh, 26 people. One of the couples was from Costa Rica. How cool. I didn't have that on my bingo card about the online connect group. So cool that, that everybody was a part of that. Thank you to Travis and Kristen for leading that. Didn't Travis do a great job last week giving the sermon? We appreciate him. And um, he, did, he gave a thoughtful message, and he's the online Connect Group leader. There's still time. You can order your book. You can probably get this in like two hours, the way delivery is now, you know, dropped off at your doorstep. But you can order the book. You can go to wellchurch.org, get the link to the online Connect Group. You could be a part of it this Wednesday. So there's still time. You haven't missed out yet if you want to be a part of that. Now today we're talking about part two in the book, pages 69 through 103. And in the book, the title of this, this section is Ugly Gospel, Ugly Faith, Four Unchristlike Ways. So it's what we don't want to be, but unfortunately what we're used to seeing called Christianity in the United States. And then uh, uh, from now on, in, in the next four weeks, we're gonna be talking about the Jesus way what it means to really follow Jesus. And there is challenging material in here. And if I can just share honestly with you, for suburban American Christians, there is challenging material here. And so I encourage you to be open and, and not let this just be another church thing that you do and go through the motions, but really be open to God's spirit. If we believe God's spirit is communicating with us and leading us and guiding us, and, and you can really experience um, some life change and growth in this series. So. What I'm going to do today is go through these four uh, ugly faiths, not going to spend equal time on all of them, so the first point's going to be kind of long, and you're going to be like, oh man, this is going to be like 3 p.m. You know, sermon, and it's not going to be that long, I promise. We'll kind of speed through the, the last part. Um, also, I don't want this entire sermon to be what we're against. That's kind of a bummer, you know, like everything's terrible, okay, what's for lunch? I don't want to do that. So at the end of the sermon, we're going to turn the corner toward a more Jesus way and see where we're headed in the rest of this series. And then finally, I want to give a disclaimer for the parents of any young children. The sermon is probably PG-13. Uh, I sent that out in my email, wanted to give fair warning, but if you didn't see that, if you have kids with an earshot here, you may want to just kind of distract them. Um, if uh, there are kids here, we, you know, there is... Um, well, kids would be an option today, um, but uh, it may be PG-13 today. So here are the four unchrist... Doesn't that sound like an exciting start to a sermon, by the way? Like, yeah, okay, I'm glad I came. All right, here are the four unchrist-like ways that Bradley Jerzak talks about in the book. Moralism, okay? So we're going to spend the most time on today. Think legalism, judgmental Christianity, being the moral police of society. And then... Ironically, partisan amoralism. This is the fusion of religion and politics so that it's my party right or wrong. Whatever, whatever the talking heads on my favorite cable news channel say, that's what I think Jesus thinks. Right? You with me? So much of that in the United States. Partisan amoralism. And then retributive factionalism. I love uh, Brad Jurisac's vocabulary in this book. This is, this is tribalism. 
This is the us-them mentalities. This is the othering, this divisive uh, spirit that we have in America that causes us to view other people as enemies and, and cast them aside, all right? Retributive factionalism, and then finally, nationalism and civil religion. So first of all, moralism is the expression of Christianity that probably all of us here grew up with. It's the, it's the Christianity of our youth. This is pop Christianity in the United States. Uh, Brad writes that uh, moralism is obedience to laws or rules. Okay, you might call it legalism. It's, it's puritanical religion. Moralism is focused on individual piety, and, it, and it's an expression of Christianity that is mostly about being sexually pure. And here comes the PG-13 aspect. So, for example, back in the 90s, I remember, which is the last time that I think moralistic Christianity really reigned in the United States, the great Satan, the most evil institution in the United States, in my church circles at least, was MTV. Anybody remember those times? And I mean, it was just the, the, the threat to Western civilization and everything godly and holy was MTV, and you had TV preachers up in arms, you know, mostly because, you know, Britney's wearing a crop top and, and, and is a corrosive influence on the youth of America. And, and you know, there's another Britney video, get, get behind me, Satan. Not today, Satan. And that was the spiritual war in the United States with, with a lot of Christians, at least the Christianity I was a part of. It was about moral purity, quote unquote, purity. And on a more serious note, purity culture, that's what it's been termed now, uh, is a part of moralism. And unfortunately, the victim of, or victims of purity culture, in my opinion, were mostly young girls. Now, it affected guys too, don't get me wrong. But purity culture was mostly about, about controlling the behavior of young girls. And if maybe you remember, uh, if you've been in, in the church world for a while, purity rings or, or true love waits, that kind of thing. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I'm not saying it's wrong to wait. I think it's a good thing to wait. That's good. But what purity culture did was there was this sense, especially towards young women, that you are the cause of sexual impurity. That there's something about you that, that causes lust. And so you, you know, modest is hottest was one of the, one of the cheesy catchphrases. And, and men are like these uncontrollable lust monsters. And, and so we cover the girls. My wife went to a Christian high school. And she told me the story. She actually didn't tell me this until a couple of years ago. Um, if they thought your skirt was too short in the Christian high school, they would make the girls get down on their knees. And if her skirt touched the floor, it was long enough. So you have girls kneeling on their knees, often in front of male administrators, to see if their, or their, their skirt was long enough. That's purity culture, all right? And so, once again, are you saying morals are bad or purity is bad? Absolutely not. I think it's good to wait. Morals are good. Here's the problem. If the message is... Somehow there's this law, this, the, this series of rules, and if you don't line up with that, you're dirty and you're bad and you're the cause of sin and evil, and, and this, is, this is part of you is bad and it's, 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 it's causing other people to sin, and then a few years later, okay, have a good marriage. That is not a recipe for success. And so many people who you know, came of age during that time have to struggle and, and heal from detox from purity culture, but it's a part of moralistic religion. I went to a, a Christian college, and, and my Christian college was a part of a denomination that historically, its, its, um, its hallmark was holiness, and that meant you don't go to movies, you don't play card games, because that was a thing, apparently, that God felt strongly about, don't play card games, and you don't drink and you don't, you don't dance. You don't go dancing. And this denomination started about 100 years ago. And so that was a really big deal. Now, apparently, sometime in the 80s, maybe, God changed his mind on movies. So they could go to movies. You would see people playing some cards every once in a while, but you still couldn't drink and you should, still couldn't dance. And there were some more 
probably self-aware people in the denomination that would tell a joke, why is it that we can't have premarital sex? Because it might lead to dancing. That was their way of, well, they noticed what was going on in their denomination. But when I was there, it was common for college students, now these are college students, to go to, let's say, a PG-13 movie, maybe like the sermon, and they would go to the movie, and then they would, they would walk out of the movie early. And then they would come back, like on Monday, and be like, yeah, we saw that movie. We walked out. Okay? And, and I didn't come from that tradition when I first got to the college. I'm like, why? And, and so, well, you know, maybe they heard some cuss words, saw a little bit of skin, you know. Knowing, I mean, it's rated that. They probably, there's a trailer. They know what the movie's going to be about. But they would go and then see a little bit of that and then kind of brag that they walked out of the movie. Well, we walked out. We walked out. And now, mind you, they've already paid the 12 bucks to, the, to Hollywood, right? They already gave their money to the, to the production company, but then would, would come back and say, well, we walked out. And it was, like a, a, it was like a badge of holiness. These are college students. These are 20-year-olds doing this because their parents have raised them in moralistic religion. Brad Jerzak writes, you know moralism has displaced your life in Christ when living faith is reduced to a system of correct behavior and moral merit badges. I love that phrase. Instead of a dynamic relationship with the Holy Spirit. When your, your version of Christianity is, you know, if you walk out of the movie, God gives you a sticker. But if you stay in the movie, you're bad. And there is something about you that is bad and dirty. And it's this, can you feel the oppression there? And that type of religion, I love his phrase, you get a moral merit badge instead of a dynamic relationship with God through the Spirit of God healing you and leading and guiding your life. And Bradley Jersak writes that moralism is based in self-loathing. And it took me a long time to figure this out in my journey of deconstruction or art restoration, if you use his metaphor from last week. It took me a long time to figure out that, and, and now I believe this, when you encounter people who are more fundamentalists, whether they're Christian, whether they're Muslim, whatever, and there are fundamentalists in every religion and no religion, when you encounter people who are fundamentalists, often that person is struggling with self-hatred. They've been giving messages, or they've been given messages about themselves, that they're bad, they're dirty. And of course, none of us wants to live like that. You're, you're, our minds can't live like that. It's not true, first of all, but none of us wants to live like that. And so psychologically, and we, we could consult Sigmund Freud here, but psychologically something happens to where I know I don't want to believe that about myself. I'm good. I'm not bad. And so what happens is we project that self-hatred onto the world. And so it's not us that's, that are bad anymore. It's everybody else we're the good ones. Our little group has God's truth. We're the good, clean, pure, holy people. And everybody else plays cards. Everybody else goes to movies. Everybody else dances. But we don't because we're the good people and we get the merit badge. And that's just this, this strange psychological projection. We've learned a lot about projection in the past few years, haven't we? We've seen that a lot, haven't we? And it seems to be this hallmark of moralism. Well, who needs to be pure? People who feel dirty. And they project that onto the world. So what is the cure for moralism? What's the cure for moralism? Well, it's, it's the real good news of Jesus Christ. It's the real gospel. Gospel means good news. When we read the New Testament, we read about Jesus, and we read about what God has done for us and wants to do in us and through us. That's the gospel, and that is good news. It means good news. Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, For it is by grace that you have been saved, through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. And so there are some old churchy million-dollar theological words here. But you're saved. You're made pure. You're made holy. You're good. You're not, uh, you're not dirty. You're, you're acceptable. You are holy and pure in God's sight, not because of your own works, not because you walked out of the movie, not because you put on a purity ring, 
but because of what God has done for you through Jesus Christ. It's, it's grace. It's a gift to you. Grace means unmerited favor. It means, it means being kind to someone whether they deserve it or not. And that's how God feels about you and I. That's the actual good news. And so it's God's grace that saves us and makes us pure and holy, and we don't have to act like it and live in fear and think we're filthy and have to walk out of a movie we pay 12 bucks for to try to get another merit badge from God. Now, this isn't on the screen, but if, you know, feel free to imprint this one on your mind. God's love for you does not depend on your behavior. That's a message we all need to internalize. Maybe you got that from your parents, maybe you didn't. God's love for you does not depend on your behavior. I have two little boys, and I try not to make them the sermon illustrations every single week, you know, but sometimes I give in. My two little boys, they're good boys. Sometimes they act up just like I did. Sometimes they throw a ball in the house. Sometimes they break stuff. You know, they make mistakes, some, or they, they choose to not listen to mom and dad, and they make mistakes. When my, my sons, they kick a ball, and they break something, do I look at my children as dirty, impure, <laughs> uh, in, unholy? Is that how I view my children? Or do I, do I love them? No matter what they do, now, of course, I don't want them to kick a ball in the house and break stuff all the time. It's not good if you grow up, you go to work when you're 25 and kick a ball and break things in the office. That's not good. I want them to grow. I want them to learn. Of course, I want them to be healthy people. I want to make healthy decisions in their teenage years. and in their Right, of course I do. But do I hate them when they break something in the house? No. I, I love them more than life itself. I was, a couple of years ago, hiking Camelback. With, uh, with my oldest son. And we were about halfway up, and there was a, a drop-off where it's not like you plummet to your death, but you would slide down about 20 feet and hit a tree, and then it is kind of precarious after that. And we, had, we were walking on this narrow path, and there were loose rocks everywhere, and he was only, this was pre-COVID, I mean, he, he must have been eight, wow. And, and he slipped on a rock. And he, he slid down. He started to slide down this drop-off. Now, once again, he's not plummeting to his death, but my, my son, is I see him sliding off the side here, and he's going to slide down a steep, rocky you know, mountainside and hit a tree in about 20 feet. And without thinking, this, see, this is the love of a parent. Without thinking, I dove for him. I saw him, I saw my precious boy slip, and he's sliding, and he's reaching up for me. Both of his hands are out, reaching up to his dad. And in the blink of an eye, without thinking, I, I just dove off the side of this thing and grabbed his hand and, and, and pulled him back up, paying no attention to what was around me. And, and, and my heart was beating out of my chest, and I, I dragged him up. Buddy, are you okay? And yeah, and I looked at him. He's not cut. Thank God. He's, nothing's broken. Everything's fine. I'm like, oh, boy. And, you know, I was just, and I looked down, and there's just blood pouring down my leg. Now, there was a, a big rock <laughs> that I had dove on. Did I care? No. No. Nope. Uh, now, am I a hero for that? No. Because our DNA has programmed us, if, if your child's life is in danger or you think so, your DNA says to you, bye-bye you, because <laughs> we're going to save your kid. That's just the way it goes. When you're a parent, you love your child more than life itself. And it, it, that struck me, and as soon as that happened, I'm like, this is going to become a sermon illustration. Just wait. <laughs> this is going to serve its purpose. And we, want to, we went on a little bit farther until I was just like, honestly too nervous. I'm like, buddy, let's go back. Because I, I couldn't quite calm down. And, and it just it showed me, wait a second. So many of us live in the, the oppressive guilt of religious moralism. We sing about God being a good father. There are also motherly metaphors for God in the scripture. God doesn't have a body. God's not a dude. God is a spirit, Jesus says. But God is this parental figure. 
I laid out for my son. And if my leg would have snapped in half, it would have been worth it to me. How much more, Jesus would say, does God love you? It's not about getting a merit badge. All right. God's love for you does not depend on your behavior. And just like a child, you don't have to pretend to be perfect because you're growing. And if you want to be more like Jesus in your character and you get into stuff like this and you want to grow, you don't have to be perfect and walk out of a $12 movie to get a sticker from God. Because God loves you all. God already loves you as much as, you're, as it's possible to love anybody. And you don't have to earn anything. Okay, but that's moralistic religion. I told you a lot of the sermon was going to be on that first point. So now that's the, that's the experience of Christianity, the ugly moralistic religion that many of us grew up with. But then something has changed over the past few years, hasn't it? Something's changed. Now, we could debate when that was. Was it 10 years ago, 12 years, 15, 20? I don't, I don't know. But sometime since, you know, the 90s, something has changed in America when it comes to the ugliness of, of Christianity, the ugly side of Christianity. And the, the other three things, in my mind, kind of flow into each other. They're all kind of a package deal, so I'm going to treat them that way. So ironically, while many of us experience this moralistic Christianity, at the same time, something else was growing, and it's what Brad Jerzak calls partisan amoralism, and here's how he defines it. When any national government, political party, or ideological faction co-ops the Christian brand, when one's ethical center does not derive from Christ, but from the talking heads that parrot the ever-shifting platform of one's political party. So something happened from just going, you know, through uh, just talking about purity all the time to now there's this fusion. This has been happening since the 70s, but it grew and it eventually eclipsed moralistic Christianity. When, when Christianity became fused with politics so that you have lots of Christians who believe their political party is God's party, that their political party is Christianity, that Jesus is somehow conflated with their favorite politician. And, and then you, again, in some Freudian way, you have the individual purity culture that was projected onto the world, and now the big issues in society become about sex, abortion, and same-sex marriage. And so I have friends for years who have voted on one issue. Where does a candidate stand on abortion? That's the only thing you care about. You could be Hitler, and apparently, and, but if you call yourself pro-life, they'll vote for you. And I don't think I'm exaggerating, by the way, unfortunately. But they will vote on one issue because now it's not just about individual purity, but now it's about societal purity and making everybody else conform to my definition of purity. And, and now my Christianity is fused with a political movement. So partisan amoralism is my party, right or wrong. Whatever my favorite talking head says on cable news, that's what's right. That's what God stands for. That's Team Jesus. Whatever the latest talking head say, uh, says, it's not allowing one's faith to influence their politics. It's the other way around. It's creating God in the image of their political party. And that's the case now for millions and millions of Americans. And this hijacking of Christianity has been wildly successful in the United States to the point that there are untold, who knows how many millions of Christians who who have strong inner convictions and strong emotion about issues, but they can't tell you why. They can't articulate. Well, they don't necessarily have any reasons why they have such strong feelings other than just watching cable news for hours a day. But they may not have the self-awareness to know that. But they have such strong emotion around issues, but they can't tell you why? And over the past few years, uh, for those of you who know my story and you, the kind of church that, that I pastor, I, I've lost a lot of my former Christian friends. Some of you can identify with me, you know, from my past life in church. And a lot of those folks, you know, they're, you know, they're not Facebook friends with me anymore. Most of the time by their choice. Not all the time, most of the time. And I've lost a lot of connections from my life, you know, past 10 years ago, I know for, for some of you, you're in that place right now where you're kind of going through a theological journey, talking about stuff like this, and, and you're noticing that you know, a lot of your relationships 
are strained and there are people who are fading out of your life. Every once in a while, I'll have some kind of gathering I go to where there are people there, you know, from, from that old world. And, and sometimes there are people who, you know, who know what I'm doing and they'll kind of get a dig in and kind of and make, you know, make sure I know what they think about my view of following Jesus and, and the well. And, and so I was at a gathering of people a couple of years ago and there's a guy there and I would look at him as a nice guy. You know, you would think, oh, he's a nice guy. And, and we were talking about some stuff and then and it very quickly turned to like societal issues and, and he knows that, you know, I'm an LGBTQ affirming pastor and, and he wanted to get a little dig in. And so he, he said something to the effect of, and he looked right at me, his face got kind of flushed, and you see that little flash of anger in somebody's eyes, and he looked at me, and he's like, what, are we just supposed to accept everybody? No. I think the irony of his question was lost on him, and so I just, I was kind of like this. But then, after he said that, he made this gesture. And if you're, you're listening in the audio, you can't see this, but he made this gesture. He goes, like that. So, as if, you know, oh man, I didn't agree with you before, but now that you've done that, oh, now I see your point. Now I see where you're coming from, yes. And I remember, I remember thinking, man, that doesn't mean anything. That's not a reason for what you believe. What are we supposed to accept, everybody? I was like, that's not a reason. For, to believe so strongly what you believe is not a reason. I don't think he could articulate a reason that he felt so strongly about this issue that we're just, hang, we're just dudes hanging out. And all of a sudden, things turn and we're, we're supposed to say, everybody. But I thought about that gesture. I love words and gestures for obvious reasons. I thought about that. What does that gesture mean? So I think, what do you have to say to that? You know, it's, it's kind of that. But it's also kind of aggressive, right? There's a lunge. It's a little combative. Mm. That, that gesture is indicative of where we have moved now in America. And, and I think that's what Brad means by retributive factionalism and nationalism. Now we're so identified, we're so fused now with, with Christianity and politics and so on that there are people who have retreated into their own camps, and that's what retributive factionalism is, your tribalism, this, this idea that now I'm in my own camp, and if you're not a part of me, you're the other. Brad calls it the othering of people. And now they're my enemies. And now we go from dudes hanging out to what? Wow. And so we have this move to retributive factionalism and Nationalism. Now, it's not the first time we've seen them. These, these movements have been present throughout the history of America, but they were dormant for a while, and now we've seen them come back over the last 10, 15, 20 years. Of course, we saw it in the Civil War. We saw it in Jim Crow uh, in the response to the Civil Rights Movement, and it's coming back. Brad Jurzak defines factionalism as it involves aggressively partisan and schismatic behavior one effect is, especially, is an especially, especially puritanical form of othering, that is, we treat people in our own camp as healthy and sane and others as a contagion. We certainly feel that, don't we, in the United States? Now, like I said in the last series, I don't believe in both sidesism. Like, oh, well, both sides are equally responsible. I don't believe that. I don't think it's true. But I do look at where, whatever opportunity I have to grow as a person, what can I do to make it better? What, what does this say to me? Not just put it on the other, not just other them and oh, well they need to learn from Jesus, not me, right? But what can I learn? And so something that sticks out to me, back in 2016 Pew Research found that 45% of Republicans and 41% of Democrats view the other party as a threat to the nation's well-being. Now, do you think that's increased? Or do you, yeah, I think you're right. And so, interesting, interestingly enough, CBS and YouGov found that this year, 41% of Democrats and 57% of Republicans view the other party not as political opponents, but enemies. Now, 
whoever chooses to do that's their choice. And I reject both sidesism. But what I do is I ask, okay, what can I do? What can I do to go against this, this tide of retributive factual, factualism? We have our own factions and then we seek retribution. We want to attack people who disagree with us. That's what, that's what that means. This is great vocabulary. We want to attack other people. So what can I do? Where can I build a bridge? Where possible? Does it mean I coddle authoritarians and fascists? No, no, I'm not interested in doing that. I'm not interested in passing that legacy onto my kids. No. I'm going to speak out for what's right. But what can I do to build a bridge? Is there anything? What can I do to have conversations where possible? It's not always possible. What can I do? This is also cancel culture. He wrote this in 2019. I don't remember if that term was really in pop culture yet. But cancel culture now, a lot of times, it's, it's, that term is used by people who just want to say racist things, and they don't like it when they get called out, and so they claim cancel culture, right? But I have seen cancel culture uh, practiced by people who I, you know, I agree with them most of the time. But then there are times where, man, they, they get really harsh on somebody in, in our own camp who maybe doesn't say the right thing or... You know, I remember on social media a couple of years ago, this guy made a post. He's maybe a 50-something white guy. He's doing his best. I mean, he's a, he's, a, he's a progressive guy, and he's trying to grow and change, and he used the, word, the wrong word for something. And he, he got lit up on social media by people in our own camp. And I just kind of thought for a second, let's ah, kind of take it easy on the guy. You know, he's trying. He's doing his best. So sometimes you do see those purity tests. But what can I do to, to swim against the tide of retributive factionalism? That's always a question I'm trying to answer. I think it's just a good check for any of us. Is there anything I can do? What can I do? I can refuse to hate. I can love. I can build relationships wherever I can. And then finally, the movement that we've seen most recently now on the ugly side of Christianity is nationalism and civil religion. Civil religion's been around for a long time, and nationalism is the one that, that is causing the most alarm. According to the book, Taking America Back for God, Christian Nationalism in the United States, by Andrew L. Whitehead and Samuel L. Perry, 20% of Americans have chosen to be nationalists. 20% of Americans. So if you're thinking, what percentage of Americans do I really have to be concerned about? I know that's a question many of you have asked over the past couple of years. Well, maybe it's 20%. They believe that 20% of Americans have become nationalists. Now, nationalism is, is it's connected to race. The word nation is rooted in people group, my people. There's a racial component to it. So nationalism is my people group gets priority and everybody else is second class. That's nationalism. When you have white nationalism, of course, it's, okay, my white people group has privilege, and everybody else has to be second class. But now we have white Christian nationalism. And the authors of the book describe white Christian nationalism as the belief that God gave America to white Christians. And that, that white Christians are the new Israel in the New Testament. And, and America is the promised land, and God gave us this land, just like God gave the land of Israel to the ancient Israelites. And, and and so you have this belief that we're God's favorite people and everybody else doesn't belong. So, so any kind of nationalism, but especially white Christian nationalism, is opposed to multiculturalism. The idea that we can have a country where people from, of any ethnicity and any people group in the world can be a part of this country and be equal and have equal rights and experience the American dream, and that's what America stands for, by the way. <laughs> Even though they didn't quite get the full meaning of that in our Constitution and Bill of Rights, that's where it's led, and that's why the Statue of Liberty is there holding the torch, and so many thousands and thousands and millions of people have come through Ellis Island and other places, give us your tired, poor, huddled masses. That's the dream of America, and so you get this weird dynamic that takes place where you'll have nationalists who claim to be patriots. But 
they don't seem to stand for the things that America stands for. And so we have this dynamic in America where, where Christianity for 20% of Americans has been fused with nationalism. And it's different from patriotism because patriotism means, well, I love my country. I'm loyal to my country. I want to support America, and I love it enough to make it better. I want to create a more perfect union, as the Constitution says, and not just believe that my people group is favored by God and everybody else is a second-class citizen. But that seems to be the most recent ugly version of Christianity in the United States. So in the past year, we heard a prominent politician give a speech and quote Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, that said, it says, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. But in the speech, he substituted the American flag for Jesus. Pointed a flag, called the flag Old Glory, and said, let us look to the author and perfecter of our faith. As he pointed to the flag. I love America. I love the flag. The flag's not Jesus. That's idolatry. That's putting something else in the place of Jesus. It's nationalism. We had a, a politician have police clear the street so he could walk across the street and have his picture taken holding a Bible upside down in front of St. John's Church in Washington, D.C. It's nationalism. There's a billboard in Georgia that's up right now, that's been going viral, and there's a picture of a prominent politician. Do you like my opaque? And, and then there's a, a quotation of Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, next to that picture of the prominent politician. Unto us a son is given, and the government shall be on his shoulders. Merry Christmas, everybody. A verse that's by Christians interpreted to be a prophecy about Jesus Christ, but we have a, po a politician's picture. That's nationalism. Somebody showed me a photo today of, a, of a, uh, a sign that's in front of a house of worship in our area here. And there's a conference about our divinely inspired constitution. I love the constitution. I love America. I love the Bill of Rights. But our Constitution is not inspired by God in the same way the Bible, we believe, is inspired by God. It's a conflation of religion and politics. It's nationalism. And it's all based, of course, on fear of the other or the desire to feel superior to other people. And then the ugliness of that gets, gets mixed together in some giant hairball with distorted versions of Christianity. And that's what we're seeing now in the United States. So that if you ask the average person, hey, what does Christianity look like? What does Christianity mean? When I say the word Christianity, what comes to mind? They might tell you about that billboard. They might tell you about the televangelist who's a nationalist. It's just become so common. And then you look at somebody who wants to follow the real Jesus like we want to do, and there are lots of others in this country that want to follow the real Jesus. What, is, what does the Bible actually say about other people groups? Paul writes in Galatians 3, so in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. You are all, all is a big word, isn't it? You are all children of God through faith. For all of you were baptized into Christ. You've clothed yourselves with Christ. You're not dirty. You're not impure. You've clothed, your, clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile nor slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. That's what the Bible actually says about what it means to be a child of God and how God views everybody as God's children, not just white Christians, as ridiculous as it is to have to say that. But that's the time that we live in. So now it's time to turn the corner. We've, we've seen these ugly versions of Christianity. Now we want to turn the corner toward a more Jesus way. What does that look like? As we go through the, the rest of this series, I want to close by telling you the story of a, a guy named Christian uh, Picciolini. Christian Picciolini is a, a former neo-Nazi leader. Uh, and he left the movement and co-founded a nonprofit called Life After Hate. And it helps people disengage from violent extremism. And he wrote a memoir, White American Youth, My Descent into America's Most Violent Hate Movement and How I Got Out. Details his involvement and his disengagement from the white power 
movement. Now, he's the son of Italian immigrants to America who settled in Chicago. His parents worked seven days a week. They, they started a business, but they sometimes worked you know, two and three jobs trying to support their new life in America. They were busy, so he, he was alone a lot. As a teenager, he felt marginalized. He felt bullied. He didn't have a place to belong. He didn't have a, place, a sense of purpose, and he was angry. He said when he was 14 years old, he was in the alley uh, smoking something, and a guy walked up to him. An older guy walked up to him, and he pulled that thing out of his mouth, and he said, that's what the Jews are trying to use to control you and make you docile. He's like, I was 14. I didn't know what a Jew was, and I didn't know what docile meant. But I knew that I wanted somebody to pay attention to me and care about me. And this, this guy who had his head shaved and was in long black boots and a black trench coat, he took Christian Piccolini in. And they became a part of this neo-Nazi skinhead group in Chicago. And he eventually became the leader. And he said, for the next eight years... He believed the lies of the neo-Nazi white power movement and viewed uh, multiculturalism as an enemy. Even though he had no evidence, he blamed Jews and people of color for crimes, even the same crimes he was committing as a neo-Nazi. He blamed immigrants for being freeloaders in America, despite the fact that his parents, who were immigrants, worked two and three jobs to try to support them. And he tells the story like this. He's like, it didn't make any sense. This is just what I did. He stockpiled weapons for what he thought was an upcoming race war. And he, he was a musician, and he produced white power music. And eventually, he opened a store selling white power music in Chicago. And he said he was 19 and during, during the course of his involvement in this group when he met a girl who was not a racist. And he fell in love with her, and they got married and had their first son. And he said when he held his son in his arms, he said not only did he reconnect with the innocence that he felt he had lost back in that alley when he was a teenager, but it challenged his identity. We sang about identity earlier. Because for the past several years, his identity was being in this white power movement, being a part of this group, a gang of sorts. And he said as he held his little newborn son in his arm, he asked himself some questions. Who am I? Am I a leader in this hate-monger white power group? Or am I a loving father? Is my purpose to scorch the earth with white supremacy? Or is it to make this world a better place for my family? What's my purpose? Who am I? And he decided to pull back from leadership in the group. And as he still managed the store, uh, he not, didn't sell just white power music. He sold other types of music, punk and metal and rap. And that led him to encounter people that started to break his stereotypes. And I have a, a two-minute video I want to show you as he tells the story of his transformation from being a nationalist who was a part of the ugliness that we've talked about towards being something different. Let's watch. And while the white power music that I was selling was 75% of my gross revenue because people were driving in from all over the country to buy it from the only store that was selling it, I also had customers come in to buy the other music. And eventually, they started to talk to me. And one day, young black teen came in and he was visibly upset and i decided to ask him what was wrong and he told me that his mother had been diagnosed with breast cancer and suddenly this young black teenager who i'd never had a meaningful conversation or, or interaction with i was able to connect with because my own mother had been diagnosed with breast cancer and i could feel his pain on another occasion, a gay couple came in with their son, and it was undeniable to me that they loved their son in the same profound ways that I loved mine. And suddenly, I couldn't rationalize or justify the prejudice that I had in my head. 
I decided to pull the white power music from the inventory when I became too embarrassed to sell it in front of my new friends. And of course, the store couldn't sustain itself, so I had to close it. At that same time, I lost nearly everything in my life. I used it as an opportunity to walk away from the movement that I'd been a part of for eight years, the only identity, community, and purpose that I'd really known for most of my life. So I had nobody. I did, lost my livelihood because I closed the store. I didn't have a great relationship with my parents, even though they tried. And my wife and children left me because I hadn't left the movement and disengaged quickly enough. And suddenly, I didn't know who I was again, or where I fit in, or what my purpose was supposed to be. You hear in his story, once again, that identity. Who am I? Who am I? And then he, his wife left him because didn't, he didn't leave the white power movement soon enough. He lost the store. And so he got a job installing computers in schools. And one of the schools that he had to go back to and install computers in was his old high school that he had been suspended from multiple times for fighting minority students. And instead, I had another video. Instead of playing that video, I'm just going to tell you the story. So he went back to the high school and he saw a security guard that he had gotten into a fight with, who was a black man. He saw the security guard walking out to his car and he decided to follow him out to his car. And he said, maybe that wasn't the best idea <laughs> based on the experience and what I had done to this guy before. And he followed him out to the car and kind of chased him down and he tapped on his shoulder. And the security guard turned around, was kind of taken aback. And Christian said, he looked into this security guard's eyes, a man that he had been in a fight with years before. And he said the only words that could come out of his mouth were, I'm sorry. He said this security guard looked at him, security buddy, and hugged him. And they had a conversation about how things had been changing in his life. He said the security guard, he said they had this moment. It was really beautiful. And the security guard said to him, he's like, I forgive you. You need to forgive yourself and move on. And he said, what you can do now is you can tell your story. And he said, that's what I've been doing for the past 18 years. And of course, that, that TED Talk, there was a crowd shot, thousands of people there, and and here are hundreds of people there at least, and thousands of people who have watched it online. And now he helps violent extremists here in America and in other countries of the world exit extremism. And he said, no matter where it is in the world, what religion it's connected to, if it's connected to a religion, the same thing. If, if anything can get them out of extremism, it's the same thing. And it's this, giving people grace. He said compassion that they don't necessarily deserve. Empathy, whether you feel like they deserve it or not. But hearing their story, he said every extremist gets in it for the same reason, identity and belonging and purpose. Who am I? What am I doing here? And, and, and who, who is like me? Who can I have a relationship with? And he said when I sit down and I talk to people, that's the same thing that I hear every single time and I listen to their story, and I empathize with them, and I show them compassion. And I don't know that he's a believer, I'm not sure, but he sure sounds like one. It's grace that leads them out of these hateful extremist movements. That's where we're headed as we talk about the Jesus way. Bradley Jerzak is going to lead us through radical self-giving, radical hospitality, radical unity, radical recovery, radical peacemaking and forgiveness, radical surrender, radical compassion and justice. And we're going to see how God not only works in our lives, but in the lives of everybody else and, and where God is calling us to, to partner with God and God's work in the world. I invite you to pray with me. Oh God, 
We want to turn away from the fraudulent versions of Christianity that have done so much harm in their ugliness, and, and we want to open ourselves to the Jesus way. God, we thank you for this book, A More Christ-like Way. We thank you most of all for the scripture that tells us about the real Jesus and the Jesus way. God, many of us here this morning in person and online or whenever we're watching or listening to this can identify with the people who are sucked in by moralistic religion. Just like Christian Picciolini, we have questions about our identity. Who am I? Am I lovable? We've been given messages that we're not. And that somehow we have to, we have to jump through these religious hoops to get a merit badge from you. And then, of course, what happens is once you're in an environment like that where people are, are telling us that, that, no, we're not good enough and there's, there's guilt and shame, there's no way out of that. You can't be pure enough. You can't put on enough purity rings. You can't walk out of enough movies to heal that wound in your soul that, that Christian talks about. The only thing that does that is grace. As Paul writes... It's by grace that you're saved. It's a gift of God. It's not by works. Nobody can brag that they're better than anybody else or they've saved themselves or they're holier than thou or purer than somebody else. Our, our relationship with you and any righteousness we have, it's a gift from you. Just like a loving parent, you love us in spite of any behavior. Your love for us does not depend on our behavior. And then you help us grow and be more like Jesus in our character, but in an atmosphere of knowing that we are accepted in love. Not that it's, well, you failed, so now I hate you. Now you've got to walk out of more movies. But in an atmosphere of no matter what happens, I know I'm loved. It's like releasing the pressure valve. All this pressure has been built up, and it's just like pushing that valve. Psst. And we can just rest and relax in your grace. We don't have to be perfect because we're growing. We don't have to be susceptible to these ugly versions of Christianity. Like we have to feel superior to other people because of the color of their skin and that ridiculousness. We can rest in your love and know that you love everybody else the same way. God, for the rest of this series, we're going to be challenged to open ourselves to new insights into following you more closely. And we pray that as we're challenged and invited by you to walk in the Jesus way, that we would not tragically turn to an ugly side of religion or to defense mechanisms, but that we would decide every day to rest in your grace and walk in the Jesus way. We thank you for what you're going to do in our lives and through our lives. In Jesus' name, everybody say amen.